Well, hi, Emmanuel Faith, and welcome to week four of our series in the parables. And as I was studying this parable, uh, I had something that happened to me a few years ago come rushing back to my mind. My in-laws had invited us to go on vacation with them, and we went to Disney World. I know, I know, it was a big deal. And I can remember the very first day we were at Disney World, we had all three of our kids with us and they were so excited and we signed up for these things called a fast pass. And here's what that means. That means you sign up for a time to go on a ride and you get to bypass the line and get in this special, really short line so that you can get to the front of the line faster. And I can remember the first time going on Space Mountain and walking past this line of people that were waiting to get on the ride. And I looked at them and I thought to myself, you suckers, ha! Like I'm walking right past you in line and I'm about to go get on this ride. And then I didn't have a fast pass later on in the day. And I saw people walking past me and I thought, You pretentious people, who do you think you are? How dare you cut in line and jump to the front of the line? You see, when I had the fast pass, it was a great opportunity. When they had the fast pass, it was a huge offense. And I thought about that as I was preparing for this parable, because this is the parable of the workers in the vineyard. And in so many ways, this is the fast pass parable. I mean, this is the parable where some people get to the front of the line and walk right past other people. It's the idea of somebody getting a promotion or somebody's business exploding and yours getting left behind, or somebody getting engaged when you've been waiting for years. It's the idea of somebody being blessed and you're sort of left a little bit in the dust. See, I don't think that just happens at Disney World. I I think that happens in life in general. And what Jesus wants to do in this parable is he wants to teach us how to be people who live in the kingdom of God, who live under his rule and his reign in this fast pass world that we live in. But this whole parable is precipitated by a conversation that Jesus had with Peter. And it's in Matthew chapter 19, verse 27. If you have your Bible, jump back there with me and listen to what Jesus and Peter are talking about. It says this in verse 27. And then Peter said in reply, See, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? So so here's this question. Jesus, we've left everything. We're your disciples. When when you said drop the nets and follow, we did that. So what are we going to get? What do we get in return? What's coming to us? What's due us? I mean, certainly, Jesus, because we are your disciples, I'm sure you have something really special and really unique in store for us. And here's the story that Jesus tells in response to Peter's question. Now, remember, if you've been with us over the last few weeks, you know this, and you're probably tired of hearing me say it by now, but that's okay. Um, Parables are designed to create disorientation that would eventually lead to spiritual awakening. There, There are stories that are designed to make us go, what? Is that, is that really the way that the world works? Listen to this story. 
that Jesus tells, starting in Matthew chapter 20, verse 1. It says this, For the kingdom of heaven, now just quick time out. The kingdom of heaven, remember, is the place where God gets what he wants, where his effective rule and reign takes place in the life of an individual or a community or eventually the entire world. The kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning and hired laborers for his vineyard. And after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into the vineyard. And the vineyard, all throughout the scriptures, is a picture of of the nation of Israel. But in this parable, and in the New Testament, in many ways, it just uh, is a picture of the entire world. Remember how the the field was the world and the sower was casting seed? The the vineyard's going to function in a very similar way. Verse 2. And going out the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, go into the vineyard too. And whatever's right, I will give you. So the first person, he says, I'll give you a denarius for your day's work. The second person, he says, I'll give you whatever's right, whatever's just. Uh, And whatever's right. Verse five. And so they went. Going out about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and he found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. Now notice the, the, the owner wants the master to go in a certain specific order. Pay the last people first. This is what's going to create the tension in this parable. Verse 9. And when those who were hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. And when those who were hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house saying, these last worked only one hour and you've made them equal to those of us who bore the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius a day? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this last worker as I gave to you. And then he asks two questions. And questions, when Jesus asks them, are always like altar calls. They're they're a, a call for a response. Here's what he says. Question one. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Okay, it's my vineyard. Can't I do whatever I want? Second question. Or do you begrudge my generosity? I love the way that the King James Version of the Scriptures puts it. Here's the way that that passage reads in the King James. Is thine evil, I evil because I am good. Is your eye evil because I'm good? We talked about the evil eye uh, a few weeks ago. Remember, it's this idea of a way to see the world that's, that's through scarcity rather than abundance. You're seeing the world wrong. That's what Jesus is saying. And so we have this payment that's given, this grace that's offered. Jesus gives the workers, the original workers, exactly what he promised. But then he gives people more than they thought he should give them. Yeah, it's really interesting what's going on in this parable. 
He says, I'll give you to the other workers, not the workers that were hired first. I'll give you what's right and what's just. But for so many years, people have used the, the old term equal pay for equal work. I mean, that's centuries old, that idea. But I think this passage wants us to wrestle with, well, what is just? Uh, For the people that are standing on the corner hoping to get hired all day, what is just? Is it just for them to get paid just for their hours? Or is it just for them to have their dignity validated by the owner? And Jesus wants us to wrestle with this. Jesus wants us to wrestle with Kingdom Economics 101. What does this look like when the kingdom of God comes to earth. And I would invite you to write this down. Write this down. Celebrating God's lavish generosity is essential to kingdom vitality. Celebrating God's lavish generosity is essential to kingdom vitality. He asked this question, are you envious because I am generous? And see, if we can't receive and celebrate grace, we cannot enjoy the kingdom of God. It's as simple as that. If we can't receive and celebrate grace, we cannot enjoy the kingdom of God. And see, grace is amazing for some, but it's infuriating for others. It's infuriating for the people who are standing in line and the fast pass uh, owners walk right past them. It's infuriating for those people. Yet in many ways, we prevent ourselves from being able to celebrate generosity. We can't earn from God and celebrate generosity at the same time. You either get paid or you get grace, but you don't get both. And see, friends, I'm so excited for the next few minutes because this parable is so beautiful. It's about dying so that we can really, truly live. It's about death to scorekeeping. It's about death to the need to be right. It's about death to the need to be first. And it's about realizing that in those deaths, we come alive to the grace of God that's abundant all around it. And it's that grace that's the very air that we breathe and it's our vitality in the kingdom. And it's not just beneficial, friends. It is essential. Yeah, yeah. Celebrate his generosity. It's the key to vitality. Are you envious because I am generous? What a great question from Jesus. See, it is great news that God is generous. It is great news for people who are willing to die. But if we are bent on grasping and clinging and winning and dominating and accumulating, improving and impressing and ranking, which so many of us are even in really subtle ways, This is a hard teaching to receive from Jesus. But over the next few minutes, I want us to dive in and hear what Jesus would want us to hear from this essential story. See, it begins by Jesus painting this picture of essentially day laborers waiting for work. 
This wouldn't have been an uncommon um, scene in Jesus's day. See, with the way that the Romans taxed the people of Israel, it was not uncommon for Israelites to lose their family's land. Uh, They would have been uh, destitute and longing for work, and many men would stand on the sidelines and on the corners in order to get work for the day. So when the master comes to look for laborers for his vineyard, he has absolutely no problem finding people. A few observations. First, it's God himself who comes and does the looking. He doesn't send the manager at this point. It's God who is on the prowl. It's God who's calling people and inviting people to work in his vineyard. Second, he calls people based on no semblance of what they can offer the vineyard. He just seems to pick people. There's no skills test. There's no hint that these people picked first are any more equipped than others. He just randomly picks. And finally, everybody standing there is standing there idle. That's the word Jesus uses, and he uses that word intentionally, and we'll come back to it in just a moment. But if we're going to be people who embrace our deadness, who die to the scorekeeping that the world would so desperately want us to hold on to, we have to understand, and I'd invite you to write this down, that invitation is based on mercy, not merit. The people who are called at 9 a.m., are not called because they're better. They're not called because they're more equipped, because they can offer the vineyard more. They're called simply based on mercy. It reminds me of what the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. He said this, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. (laughs) I mean, Paul's not exactly inflating their ego, is he? He's going, well, we were all sort of uh, the cast-offs and the castaways. We're a a motley crew. And what he's saying and Jesus is saying is that entry into God's kingdom is not gained by our work or our action, but it's gained by the generosity of God from beginning to end. Nobody gets to look in the mirror and think to themselves, aren't I amazing? We look in the mirror and we point back to God and say, God, your grace is abundant. See, Jesus doesn't tell us this, though, so that we'll be defeated. That's not his point. His point is to create a kingdom where everybody is equal. The the people called at 9 a.m. and the people called at 5 p.m. They are all on equal footing. So please hear me this with this Emmanuel faith. I think in our current cultural moment, this is so important. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. There's neither slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, male nor female. We are all one in Christ. Nobody is better because they have more education. Nobody is better because of the color of their skin. Nobody is better because they've been a follower of Jesus for a longer time. This passage would say that in the kingdom of God, we are all equal because the invitation comes by mercy, not by merit. But the second thing that Jesus wants us to see is he uses this word in verse 3 and verse 6, this word idle. And it's not the same word as lazy. The word idle is not a pejorative. It it actually carries with it the idea that um, the people wanted to work, but they just didn't have the opportunity. 
They, they weren't sitting back just being lazy. They actually wanted to step into their God-given purpose to contribute. And I don't know if you know this, but work is not a part of the curse. <laughs> that work is actually a part of God's design. And if you go back and you read through Genesis chapter 1 through 3, where God establishes this in the created order with Adam and Eve called to cultivate the ground around them and to produce food and to be a part of what God is doing in the world, they don't work to earn a wage. They actually work to be a part of what God is doing in the world. They're participating with God. And so idleness actually goes against design. It's why Jesus, when he announces the kingdom of God, follows that with the call to fish for people. Listen to it. Matthew chapter 7, verses, or Matthew chapter 4, 17 through 19. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Change your mind because God's rule and reign is here right now. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. See, this this announcement that the kingdom of God is at hand is followed directly by, come on, follow me. There's, There's work to be done. Because a disciple by nature is a worker. It's somebody who participates with Jesus in the cultivation of his vineyard. But this passage wants to wrestle with, well, what kind of payment do we get for our work? Remember Peter's original question that prompted this whole parable? What are we going to get for our labor? What are we going to get for leaving everything? And so Jesus goes on and he tells them that they each get a denarius, right? The people that were hired at the 11th hour and the people that had worked all day and there's frustration and there's weeping and gnashing of teeth because it seems really unfair. I mean, it's like, well, Jesus, why wouldn't you just pay them for the work that was done? Uh, Maybe this analogy would help. Uh, I have three kids. Uh, Ethan, who's 11, Avery, who's nine, and Reed, who's seven. And let's say I wanted to rebuild the deck in the backyard. And so I asked Ethan, hey, I told him, I'm going to pay you $20 to come and help me rebuild this deck. And he started early in the morning with me, and he's taping off things, he's measuring things, I'm cutting it, and he's helping me. And then at about noon, I asked Avery to come and help. And then at three o'clock, I asked Reed to come and help. And at the end of the day, I decide to give them each $20. And Ethan looks at me and goes, hey, I've been working all day with you, dad. But here's the thing. Here's the question. Did I need his labor? I mean, did I need him to come alongside of me? And as an 11 year old, I'm sure he added to the project for sure. But but was his work absolutely 100% essential to me accomplishing what I needed to accomplish? See, I think it's the same thing when we are asked by God to join his work in the vineyard. That maybe it's more about being with our father in his vineyard than it is about what we produce in the vineyard. Uh, Maybe, just maybe, we need the vineyard more than the vineyard needs us. 
Maybe, just maybe, when God calls us off of the sideline and into the game, it's like strapping on our Fisher Price work belt and going to work with Dad. Because our Father is always at work. He's cultivating, He's planting, He's working, and we get the joy of partnering with Him. Don't miss this. Maybe we need our work in the kingdom more than the kingdom needs our work. So write this down. Relationship is established on participation, not producing. Not producing. And this is drawing out this point that there is, are, are two fundamental postures we can have with God. One of them is transactional. God, if I do X, Y, and Z, you give me this. That's, that's production. And that's where the prosperity gospel lie is all based out of. If I do this, God, then you do that. But the other posture is relational, relational. God, you are my father. And this is based off of not earning and achieving, but it's based off of intimacy and affection. As Jesus says, abide in me and you will bear fruit. See, notice the vineyard owner doesn't give the five o'clockers a handout. He gives them exactly what they're hoping for, a job to partner with him in the work that he is doing in his world. Yeah, the invitation is based off of mercy, not merit. And the relationship is based off of participation with our Father, not producing for Him. I love this picture of God inviting us to come and to, to work alongside of Him and he, he suggests that a silly question to ask is, how much am I going to make? Because he's saying, I'm a generous God. You're going to make enough to support you. Look at verses 10 through 14 again with me. Listen to the way that Jesus tells this story. Now, when those who are hired first came, they thought they would receive more. Remember, Jesus tells the story intentionally by starting by paying the people that got there last first. He could have avoided all of this tension if he just would have paid the people who got there first, paid him first, and then sent him away and done what he wanted. But he wants to create the tension. He wants this feeling of us going, well, that's not fair. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house saying, these last worked only one hour and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree to me with, for a denarius? And a denarius was a generous day's wage. Isn't that what you agreed to? And it was. <laughs> See, the injustice in this story is not that Jesus shortchanged anyone. It's that God was generous, overly, abundantly generous to some. That's the problem. But see, when they start to look around, these workers, they start to realize, listen, what I'm holding, one denarius, isn't good enough in relationship to what everybody else has. And isn't that how we often feel in life? Like what we have is good enough until we see what somebody else has. 
Like the marriage is good enough until we see the other marriage that's flourishing or the kids, they're a joy, but then some other kids are a little bit more well-behaved or we have a job, but then we find somebody else who's got a little bit better job or we have a relationship with God that's good, but then somebody else seems to hear from God in this unique way and it just starts to stir in us this discontent. And that's the way that so much of the world works. But what Jesus wants to teach us is that looking around at what others have will kill the contentment and the joy in what you hold. I love the way that Ayanla Van Zant put it. They said, comparison is an act of violence against the self. And I would invite you to write this down. Sufficiency is centered in contentment, not in comparison. You will never be content if you are comparing what you have to other people. Because here's the thing, here's the secret. You're always gonna find somebody who has more or better or shinier or newer. Contentment is centered in the conviction that God is giving you exactly what he wants to give you at this time in this season. And he alone is sufficient and he alone is enough. See, one of the things that this parable wants to teach us is that God is a God of abundance, not of scarcity. And that there is enough of the things that really matter in life. There's enough of that to go around for the entire world. I mean, think of it. What are the things that really make life worth living? They're things like love and joy and peace and hope and blessing and happiness. And all of these things are the things that make us drink deep of life and go, thank you, God. And those things are not scarce. There's enough of them to go around. And so Jesus is saying, will you trust me? If I give somebody else more than you think I, they deserve, will you trust me that there's enough for you also? Yeah. See, grasping and clinging and winning and dominating and accumulating and improving and impressing and controlling energy is rooted in a scarcity mentality. I've got to protect it and I've got to get mine. But when we throw out the scorebooks, we get rid of comparison and we can actually step into the contentment that the Apostle Paul describes in Philippians chapter 4. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am, to be content. And that word content is the same word that we translate sufficient. Sufficient. Content in the sense of being satisfied because we are living in Christ's sufficiency. Oh, this is so good. And listen to what Jesus says. Verse 15. Two questions. Remember, they're altar calls. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? The answer is, you're God. You can do whatever you want. Second, or do you begrudge my generosity? See, what if you found out that God was better than you think? What if you found out that God was more generous than you think? What if you found out that more people make it into heaven than you think should make it in? Would that make you happy or upset? See, see, I know some people that would get upset to find out that maybe they were wrong about those things. But when you realize that you don't deserve anything, that you're just a worker on the corner at the 11th hour waiting to be picked up by God and he does pick you up, write this down, your response is rooted in joy, not jealousy. 
if we can't celebrate grace, God's unmerited favor towards us, if we can't get excited about that, we will never enjoy heaven. We will never embrace life in the kingdom of God. And please note this, in this parable, people aren't upset because God shortchanged anyone. In fact, just the opposite. They're upset because he was overly generous to some. But that chides at our desire for fairness, doesn't it? I mean, that's like somebody walking past us with a fast pass and we've been working in the heat of the day all day. I mean, this passage draws out some things in my soul, maybe in yours too. Yeah, when I sin, I want mercy. But when people sin against me, I want them to be judged. When I fall short, I want help. But when others fall short, I want them to pick themselves up and get it done on their own. When I succeed, it's because I worked. When others fail, it's because they didn't work hard enough. But Jesus is saying, maybe you were just first in the field. Like maybe you were just invited first. Maybe you had an advantage or a popular word in our day right now. Maybe you had a privilege that others just didn't have. And Jesus is saying, how would you feel if you were the last and you weren't going to have enough to feed your family? How would you feel if God was overly generous to you? Oh, you'd be ecstatic. And so Jesus is saying, well, maybe you should feel that way when others get that blessing also. You see, friends, there is invitation that's based on mercy, not your merit. There's a relationship that's grounded in participation with your father, not on producing for your father. There's sufficiency that is found in contentment, not in comparing yourself with one another. And there's a response that's grounded in joy, not jealousy. Friends, this is what it looks like to live with vitality in the kingdom of God celebrating your good father's generosity. So remember how this whole parable was launched by a question that Peter asked Jesus in Matthew chapter 19, verse 27. He asked, so what are we going to get because we followed you? Jump back there with me and let's look at the way that that passage ends because it's going to provoke some questions for how we interpret this passage as well. Verse 28. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you in the new world, when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel and everyone catch this. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my namesake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. So there's some that receive a hundredfold. And yet, in this parable that we've just studied, Jesus says they all receive one denarius, whether they start at the beginning of the day or at the very end. So on some level, they're all equal. And then on another level, some receive a hundredfold. Like, how can this be? Let me throw out an idea to you. Like, maybe when we think about reward, 
we think about it too extrinsically, like things that we get, rather than it being an intrinsic reward. So, So maybe, maybe the first and the last is the extent to which the experience of the joy of the kingdom is actually lived out in our soul. Maybe those who are are first, who are actually last, are the people who really experience the joy of living in the kingdom. Maybe they're the ones who understand that it all came by grace. If you go over to John chapter 15, verses 9 through 11, listen to what Jesus says. He says, As the Father loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commands, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. See, the reward, catch this, you guys, the reward is knowing his love and experiencing his joy. And we tend to think of of reward as something that comes at us from the outside, but maybe it's something that springs up within us from the inside. And so when Jesus ends this parable and ends what he tells Peter in chapter 19, he says, But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. See, the, the last becomes first by sheer grace, not by work performed. But the first become last because of pride and inflated ego. Last is first by grace, but first is last by pride. And I'd invite you to write this down. The only way to become last is to think that you deserve to be first. The only way to become last is to think that you deserve to be first. Say it another way. Pride is the greatest way to cut off spiritual life and spiritual vitality. And think of how often this happens to us, whether it's in theological rightness or in ethical goodness or in looking at what we've produced or achieved, or maybe it's in jockeying for position or trying to create a following or keeping track of the score or living with pretense and documenting our achievements or thinking that we know all the answers and looking down on others who disagree with us. Yeah. Those who enjoy the kingdom least are those who think they've earned it most. And those who enjoy the kingdom most are those who know that they deserve it the least. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. I I read a story, you know about this woman for sure, who I think just exhibits this, oozes this in so many ways. I mean, at the age of 22, she wrote her autobiography, Um, She uh, started an international organization that advocates for health and wellness around the globe. From the years 1946 to 1957, she went on a worldwide speaking tour and developed relationships with some of the most influential people in the entire world, giving motivational speeches to thousands of people. She was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 1964, and she was ranked as one of the most influential people of the 20th century. Her name? Helen Keller. At the age of 19 months, she was blind and she was deaf. And yet, she was used by God 
to do great and mighty things. She's a perfect example of the first becoming last and the last becoming first. This, friends, is the way that the kingdom of God works. If you want to live this out this week, let me just give you two quick things and then we'll end. First, the two practices you can do. Practice confession. I mean, confession humbles you and exalts you all at the same time. And if you can't think of anything to confess, ask the people around you. They might have some ideas. But it's this beautiful way to celebrate your, your loserness, your deadness, your fifth hourness or five o'clockness, if you will, right before God. And to remember that He is abundantly generous. Second, and I, can, I want to encourage you to do this celebrate unfairness. Um, look for ways that God is exalting people and bless them. People other than you, encourage them. Maybe, maybe you give a bigger tip this week, or maybe you give lavish compliments this week, or maybe you open yourself up a little bit this week and you celebrate with others the reality that the kingdom of grace is a party for the ages. See, this is a beautiful picture, friends, of God's lavish generosity. And our celebration of that generosity is the very thing that leads to kingdom vitality. If I had to summarize this whole entire parable in one sentence, it would be this. God meets us in our need and he loves us as we are. And we are called to go and do likewise. May you drink deep of his grace and you, may you extend wide his mercy. God bless.